Welcome to Paved Paradise, a podcast about housing in Los Angeles, told from the perspective of residents, activists, artists, and city officials. I'm your host, Sue Bell-Yank. Today, we explore the story of the last skid row in America, right here in downtown Los Angeles, which is an important one in the face of the biggest homelessness crisis we've ever seen in this city. Why is Skid Row so important? Because the crisis that is now spreading all over the city has been affecting Skid Row since the 1980s. The structural inequities in our society that have infected our social fabric like a virus were apparent in Skid Row decades before they became more visible elsewhere. And as a result, there's a lot we can learn from Skid Row from the resilient community that has lived there for years, side by side, housed and unhoused, and learned skills, tactics, and strategies to not only survive, but lift each other up to overcome some of the greatest challenges life can throw at a person. John Malpede and Henriette Browers, artists who have worked in Skid Row for decades, recently began calling Skid Row the biggest recovery community anywhere. Because that name reveals the positive support that Skid Row provides to those in our society that have been left behind, and the dedication of people who cannot simply afford to ignore this crisis. This episode, we're going to dig into homelessness and how it is the natural endgame of the housing and economic policies this country has adopted for years. We're going to explore when and why we, as a society, started to turn a blind eye to our unhoused neighbors. And we're going to talk to the people who couldn't ignore it, who never did, and how they continue to fight for a future in which housing is accepted as a human right for all. John and Henriette are our guides in this journey because they have seen the evolution of Skid Row since the 1980s from the front lines. Much of the audio in this episode is courtesy of their archives, and their practice as artists, activists, and placekeepers shines a light not only on policies around homelessness in L.A., but also cultural work around empathy and humanity that is so desperately needed in the Skid Row community. Here are John and Henriette. I moved to L.A. in 1985, and I started working with people in Skid Row in 1984, which motivated the move. And then uh, I, I started a performance workshop out of Inner City Law Center, which was a free law center that had just broken away from the Catholic worker. Inner City Law got some money from Legal Aid Foundation, and they hired me as a outreach paralegal, which was, you know, I had been a performance artist until I arrived here. And then I was an outreach paralegal. We started doing performance workshops when, when nobody was around, when the lawyers weren't around, pushing the desks out of the way and stuff. And we, a year later, we did our first indoor performance called South of the Clouds. And, and, then, I, and then at that moment, I was anointed as a theater, theater director, you know, so. So I'm Harriet, Harriet Brouwers. I, I am a theater maker from the Netherlands. And uh, I came in uh, 2000, around 2000, to Los Angeles and I started working with the Los Angeles Poverty Department soon after that. Uh, so, I know Skid Row for so 18 years now.
One of John's first performances about homelessness was a monologue he had done in collaboration with Erica Rothenberg for Art on the Beach in New York City in 1984, which was produced by the public art organization Creative Time. This happened when the Hudson landfill was being turned into Battery Park, which was then one of the most expensive pieces of real estate in the country. They created a giant 20-foot megaphone called the Freedom of Expression National Monument with architect Lori Hawkinson, which was pointed across the street at the then World Trade Center, and people could shout whatever they wanted to the economic powers that be. I was living in New York, and you started seeing people living on the streets in the early 80s, you know, and you hadn't seen that before, even though, you know, I, w- I had lived in the East Village, which at that time was a bad, you know, so-called bad neighborhood, though it was the center of the universe. But still, you, you know, there was a noticeable difference. Suddenly, there were a lot of people living on the street. I got interested in that and um, started making a performance about it, and then I was here uh, in the summer of 84, I was here, and that was uh, just before the Olympics, like the month before the Olympics, there were a lot of um, police sweeps going on to put a smiley face on the city, and there were hearings at the Board of Supervisors who run, the County Board of Supervisors who run the, the health system, the mental health system, and the welfare system. So there were, I went to the I went to one of those hearings and I saw this group of people who were called the homeless organizing team. They were people from the Catholic worker world. So either people who lived in the community of Catholic workers or people who who uh, ate at their kitchen or whatever. This hearing was about um, the conditions of the hotels. If people applied as homeless, they were given vouchers to hotels. But as one of the Testifier said, you know, rats were jumping out of the walls, etc., etc. I started volunteering for them, and um, and that allowed me to write something that was both hallucinated and very accurate. And the the central trope of what I wrote was two people who had been given homeless people who had given been given one bus tickets, which is known as Greyhound therapy by the city to get out of town during the Olympics. And I picked that lineup from Roger Farr who was the head of uh, county uh, health department at the time, or mental health department. And he said that at that hearing. Skid Row is an area of about 50 city blocks in downtown LA, not quite half a mile square, and has one of the largest homeless populations and concentrations of low-income housing and homeless services in the county. Many cities had skid rows in the early part of the 20th century, especially during the Great Depression. It got its name from describing people who were, quote, on the skids, meaning they were falling to the bottom of society. It could refer colloquially to any depressed street in any city where people down on their luck tended to congregate. L.A.'s Skid Row largely formed in the late 19th century, when a number of multi-story residential hotels went up, home to seasonal migrant workers. These hotels also attracted saloons and social services for this population, ultimately drawing in other folks in precarious situations who needed those services. By the 1930s, it was home to 10,000 people on the margins of society, including homeless people and those struggling with alcoholism. Here's a 1939 description from the Los Angeles Times, which, despite the patronizing tone, makes the place sound vibrant, diverse, and exciting. Quote, 
the population is probably more motley than that in a similar district of any other American city. Jews, Greeks, and Italians in the doorways of pawn shops and secondhand clothing stores vie with one another to lure the unwary passerby inside. A fat German runs a beer parlor, and just across the street, a dapper Frenchman ladles up five-cent bowls of split pea soup. A large blonde woman named Sunshine, born in Egypt, manages one of the cleaner rooming houses. A few Chinese practically monopolize the hand laundry business, and Japanese, the cheapest cafes and flop houses. American Indians barter for forbidden whiskey. Chattering Mexicans loiter on the steps leading up to a second floor hotel. Dapper Negroes, better dressed than any other vagabonds, wander by in riotous groups. Houston, Irvine, The Los Angeles Times, March 26, 1939. Despite efforts in the 50s and 60s to clean out Skid Row, including tearing down buildings considered to be blighted and multiple police raids, the combination of low-cost, single-occupancy residential hotels and social services to help those in need continued to attract people in search of help, recovery, and housing. In the 1980s, though, things began to spill over, and homelessness started becoming a very visible crisis. Tanya Tull, who founded multiple nonprofits to aid in this crisis, including Para Los Niños in 1980 and LA Family Housing in 1983, talks about witnessing this disturbing crisis in action in the early 1980s. This interview excerpt was provided by John and Henriette of the LA Poverty Department, who we heard from earlier, along with many of the others in this episode, so you may hear them and the voices of their colleagues asking questions and interjecting. Tanya talks first about seeing homeless families with children on the streets because of the massive redevelopment of downtown and the removal of affordable housing all over the city. As rents began to increase in other parts of the city, people started to converge down on the missions or these um, cheaper hotel accommodations, not even residential hotel anymore, just a room. Men, women, and children, families and individual people, and um, people being released from state hospitals. This is where they would all come. So at some point, it spilled over. It spilled over in 1983. I came to work five days a week, 8 o'clock in the morning down 6th Street, 80, 81, 82, 83. I saw the first body lying on the street. What was it about 1983? that all of a sudden, people began sleeping on the streets, something that has become commonplace now. Well, it was a combination of nationwide economic and social factors that amounted to a perfect storm. Here are just a few facts. In the decade following 1973, 4.5 million units were removed from the nation's housing stock, half of which was occupied by low-income households. There was a widespread removal of state mental health facilities, and asylum populations were turned out into the streets with no supportive structures put in place. Between 1982 and 1985, federal programs targeted to the poor were reduced by $57 billion. 75,000 manufacturing jobs were lost between 1978 and 1982. There was an explosion of crack cocaine on the streets and reductions in drug treatment programs at the very same time. 
and healthcare costs were through the roof. Doesn't this all sound a little too familiar? All of those people living on the brink, just a missed paycheck or illness away from losing their home, suddenly had no social safety net to help them get back on their feet. And so they fell through the cracks. Tanya Tull began working in Skid Row during the early days of homelessness in America and witnessed this disturbing crisis in action. This led to a 40-year career in the field in which she developed the housing-first approach to ending and preventing homelessness. This strategy, which has since been adopted by cities nationwide, had its first federally funded demonstration project in L.A.'s Skid Row at the organization she founded called Para Los Niños. She went on to found multiple other organizations addressing homelessness, including a community of friends in 1988, which was the first permanent supportive housing model in the country. This interview excerpt was provided by John and Henriette of the L.A. Poverty Department, who we heard from earlier, along with many of the others in this episode. So you may hear them and the voices of their colleagues asking questions and interjecting. Tanya talks about her first time seeing homeless families with children on the streets in the early 1980s because of the massive redevelopment of downtown and the removal of affordable housing all over the city. The idea was to keep doing shelters and somehow homelessness would go away as if housing happens. It took a long time for the powers that be to realize a long time that homelessness ends when people can afford their housing. It's not a disease. People with mental health problems, drinking problems, drug problems, are in housing all over the country today and have never been homeless. It's a housing issue. It's a poverty issue. It's a poverty issue. Nancy Minty was also in Skid Row in the 1980s, and the crisis she saw led her to found Inner City Law, Skid Row's only legal firm and a lifeline for many of the residents there. She describes the situation at the time and the political response to it. The earliest cases involved people in Skid Row who had basically one of three problems. Um, They were living in these terrible Skid Row hotels where the conditions were, you know, as we saw some of the pictures, they needed help, you know, getting decent housing or forcing the, you know, the landlord to make the housing habitable. They were being exploited by their employers if they had work, like the the day labor agencies that would take them out leafleting in a community and then ditch them there or not pay them or, you know, cheat them in some other way. Or in the terrible sweatshops, you know, the garment factories, you know. Or if they weren't working, if they went to try and get help at the welfare office, they were turned away because they didn't have identification, um, you know, or they uh, were too mentally disoriented to be able to fill out the form, um, you know, all of the, the barriers that then became the subject of, you know, Gary Blasey and Mark Rosenbaum's great litigation that they developed you know, later that year. So um, uh, those were the first problems. And then, you know, after, you know, shortly thereafter, um, 
in September, Ronald Reagan was elected, the social service safety net started being dismantled, and people who formerly had been poor but surviving, you know, on unemployment or food stamps or, you know, housing vouchers or whatever, started falling through to the streets, and um, we started seeing the homeless problem. We also started seeing the great wave of immigration from the, the turmoil, you know, in, in Central America and, and, and uh, the economic chaos in, in Mexico. And uh, we started seeing the families, you know, uh, I remember seeing, and that was, you know, a, a bit of a shock at first, you know, because all of a sudden you'd see these little girls in pastel ruffled you know, dresses walking down Skid Row with their mommies, you know, like these, like little human birthday cakes, you know, they were all <laughs> ruffled up and bowed up, you know, and, I, and it was quite a sight, you know, and, and, um, and, uh, and then the homeless, and, and at, at first when, it, you know, when I first started seeing the homeless problem, I thought, oh, well, you know, we're going to solve this, this is, this is, United States, you know, we don't have homeless people, you know, we're not a third world country, so this, you know, something has gone terribly wrong, but we're going to fix this, you know, yeah. and and um, and and uh, every year it would get worse, you know, and worse, and then, you know, I started thinking, how far can this go, you know, what are they going to do, just like push them all in the river, you know, and that's then when Tom Bradley came up with the plan to push them all into the river <laughs> bed and cabins, you know, and I said, you know, I better stop, I better stop speculating, you know, because, you know, you know, and, uh, and finally I realized, you know, something, the truth of something pretty brutal that Gary Blasey had said to me at one point, um, you know, at one point I was uh, very uh, sincerely and naively making the argument to the county board of supervisors that it would be less expensive to house people than it is to cycle them through the health system, the mental health system, the prison system, the you know the welfare system. That you know, the, just put them in a house. You know, it's it's cheaper. And Gary said, Nancy, they know that the cheapest thing to do is to just let them die in the street. Yeah, and. And, you know, finally I realized, yeah, that's right. You know, we don't, we don't have to solve this problem because the cheapest thing to do is to ignore it. There was a tent city outside of City Hall from Christmas Eve 1984 to New Year's, which raised a lot of awareness about homelessness in Los Angeles. The Homeless Organizing Team, which was a coalition of concerned citizens and organizations like Inner City Law, also had a team of committed pro bono lawyers who were pursuing the same agenda of changes to the welfare and housing voucher system in the courts. And all along, these groups worked directly with and were guided by the actual people who were fighting for their own housing. Well, I have to give most of the credit for that to Matt Lyons, um, who was a young man uh, who had come out of the service and uh, joined the Catholic Worker. And so he, you know, was a, a blue-collar lad himself. And... Um, and at the time, people at the Catholic Worker were given a, they had a choice. They worked in the soup kitchen in the morning, and then they could decide which of the Catholic Worker projects they'd like to work in in the afternoon. And some of them worked in the medical clinic that they had at the time, and others decided they wanted to work with me. And Matt was one of the ones who wanted to work with me. He was really 
moved by the plight of the homeless. In fact, at one point he decided that he wanted to go out and spend a week on the street um, to really experience what it was like to have to fend for himself and find food and, you know, try and find a place to sleep and everything. So he, and he was young at the time, you know, early 20-something, you know, and and um, so he went out, it was winter, and um, started his week on the street, and he became so ill that he had to call off the experiment before the week was up. He had to come back inside because he got really sick. That was a good lesson to all of us of how, you know, tough it was to be on the street and how quickly you could fall apart and, and you know, um, get in real trouble. I believe that the idea was originally his, but he became the prime organizer uh, and uh, we just invited all of the people that we were working with, you know, um, at the legal clinic and, and, you know, in the soup kitchen to come to their community meetings and come up with a strategy for how to get their needs met. And um, so that's how the homeless organizing team, or HOT, was formed, and, and we all started participating together, everybody had an equal voice, you know, there weren't officers or officials, and it wasn't us telling the homeless what to do or how to do it, you know, it was everybody just kind of coming together saying, we've got this problem, you know, people have these needs, and, you know, how can we address this? And so um, we decided as a group that the focal point would be the Board of Supervisors because they were controlling the welfare offices, you know, and and, um, had access to some of the things that people needed, and and uh, the group decided that their main demand was jobs. You know, it wasn't um, handouts or, or welfare or anything. But so uh, then uh, the idea was to have these rallies and marches to the Board of Supervisors to make the problem visible, you know, and, and to try and, and generate publicity around this issue. And, and um, we did that for a time, and then it became apparent that we needed to escalate because we, that wasn't going far enough. And so that's when the tent city, the winter of 84. With so many homeless newly on the streets, coupled with the county's refusal to do anything about it, these encampments kept springing up many organized by activists, in an effort to create both a safe place to live for people on the street and for publicity. Tent City, Justiceville, Love Camp, and the Urban Campground were just a few of these efforts. They spurred an enormous backlash from the city in 1985 and were bulldozed. Just as the conditions that would lead to an explosion of the homeless population were brewing in the 1970s, new development plans to turn Skid Row into a financial center like Bunker Hill were being created, called the Silver Book Plan. The unique services and supportive housing in this community were being threatened at the same time that they were needed the most. You know, people call it the last Skid Row in America, but it would have been disappeared years ago if it hadn't been for smart uh, activists. In the, in, the, in the 70s, after, you know, after Bunker Hill was, um, took a residential neighborhood, they completely disappeared it. They actually, they, yeah, they did flatten the top of the hill and they put up, uh, you know, bank towers. So then after this, and that was of course a business promoted plan that was embraced by the uh, CRA and the city. Then there was another uh, 
on the success of that, they want to do the same thing with everything east of Hill Street and uh, and actually south as well, so it included South Park and all that, called the, called the Silver Book Plan. And, um, and some, uh, some 25-year-olds known as, uh, well, Jeff Dietrich and uh, Catherine Morris, who was maybe 30, older, yeah. yeah, who, who were, had just started the Catholic Worker, Catherine went to a, a meeting about this, and, um, and together, they got together with someone at the Community Design Center, Jim Bonner, and um, somebody at Legal Aid, Chuck Elsesser, who was uh, doing, the, I think, the eviction, eviction defense center there. And they, they developed an alternative plan, and they invited, invited a, um, an academic from Philadelphia who had done, uh, been involved in the, in the redo of Philadelphia Skid Row, which was minuscule compared to here. And he wrote, he wrote a report and saying, and they, which they distributed to uh, city council. And basically it said, well, if you knock down all the housing in this area, these people are going to some, go somewhere else like your neighborhood. And so that created a coalition of the idealistic and the cynical that carried the day. And they, instead, they saved 50 blocks of skid, the housing in 50 blocks of Skid Row and committed to putting more uh, resources into that area via the CRA and other sources. Right around this time, John Malpede started doing theater workshops with and for the homeless in the neighborhood pushing aside desks in the inner city law offices and teaching open classes at night. This group would eventually take the name LA Poverty Department, or LAPD for short, and become a needed platform for expression, and increasingly a channel for advocacy and activism around homelessness. I started doing workshops in 1985, and then we, 30 minute, 30 second things, and then one minute things, and then five minute things. But eventually we were gonna go perform somewhere, and so there seemed like a need for a to identify ourselves. So there was a, we voted in, the, re in uh, the workshop, and you know, so, so a bunch of names were suggested. Somebody suggested the name LAPD, which you know, with, drew a lot of laughs, I guess. But then someone else came up with what those letters would mean, Los Angeles Poverty Department. And then we took a vote, and that turned out to be the winner. I think, you know, the other LAPD has always been, um, you had a heavy thumb on the neighborhood, you know, so. People call us the good LAPD now. Good LAPD. <laughs> <laughs> well, we still make performances, and we generally more or less rehearse two or three times a week, most, most months of the year. And the As rehearsals are open for everybody. Yeah, they're yeah they're open to anyone. They they they've always been open for everyone. And initially, the idea was because a lot of people were excluded from any of the services because they didn't conform to the rules. Then there was a we wanted to create a situation that wasn't like that. Nancy Minty offered the inner city law office space to LAPD because she believed in the power of their work. LAPD gradually grew to encompass other initiatives, largely focused on celebrating the humanity and talent of those who lived in Skid Row, as well as raising up the activists and residents that worked tirelessly to make this place into a community of people that rely on and help one another. You really made a place for me oh. in, in uh, you know, when I showed up yeah, and yeah, really changed yeah. my life. So I 
Can't thank you. Well, John, you know, you were the roses, you know, we were doing the bread and then you arrived and you were the roses, you know, that we were able to offer to people. And and, um, and it was just extraordinary over those years to see people find their their identity and dignity through your work, you know, in a way that nothing that we did really could give them. But through art, you know, through art and through the particular genius of the way you brought it to Skid Row and made it accessible to Skid Row, you know, people w- were transformed. And, and you know, what a gift, what a gift. That has always been the mission of, of uh, Los Angeles Poverty Department. But I think in 2002, when gentrification became clear, we did a project, Is There History of in Skid Row? Because the community in the LA Times was portrayed like a transient community and uh, so we and we said well is this is this actually true uh, so that, does that mean because nobody stays here that there is no history and so uh, and all of the people became came and said no that's not true so we started you know also get a film camera and started filming people and uh, and getting uh, documenting the history of the community and the people that live there and uh, so just to say that that's a long way of, you know, finally in 2012, we decided that we know so many people that have been so important. Uh, we really want to honor those people. And LAPD never had its own space. And so we thought, let's make an outdoor museum. Let's make like the Hollywood Walk of Fame, the Hollywood Walk of Fame famous Skid Row people, because everybody, it is a community and everybody knows these people. Because Skid Row is, is talked about, yeah, as I say, of like, oh, it's homeless people, it's criminals, it's drug addicts, uh, and all these tents and all of, but there is actually a, a, a big community, more than 10,000 people, that live in SRO, single room occupancy hotels. Uh, and because there is no affordable housing anywhere else, uh, they stay there. And many members in our group have been uh, with the group for more than, than 15, 20 years. We started looking at that history and uh, the first time we did it in 2012, we did Walk the Talk. We interviewed uh, like 36, even more actually, but it ended up being 36 people that really, uh, and because of John knowing the long history and knowing these people personally from, you know, the 1970s, uh, 85, when he started, all these people that were there that started this community. Part of the idea was to to you know, capture a broad range of the history. So we have, you know, we have people that started or run major institutions, and we have people that led street encampments. The original Walk the Talk project was meant to be a permanent public artwork and proposed placing stars, like the celebrity stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, in front of the homes or businesses of these people being honored. The honorees would be those who had contributed to the Skid Row neighborhood, people who founded legal aid organizations, rescue missions, nonprofit housing organizations, as well as important community members who had organized park and street cleanups. And like all good public art projects, it had to have a, a question mark as to whether it would ever be allowed to happen. And and because it was because of the compression of Skid Row and the gentrification, some of these people's faces would have ended up in places where they definitely wouldn't want them. Eventually, the Walk the Talk permanent project was scuttled, so LAPD decided to turn it into a temporary event and public spectacle. 
So we came up with the idea, well, then we'll do a parade, we'll, we'll paint, uh, we have their portraits, which were Mr. Brainwich made beautiful uh, uh, portraits, and we just uh, put them on sticks and we carried them with us. And we had a big brass band um, and we did three days of performances because we went to every place, each place where each person used to work or was still working or used to live or still lived. Um, so we did, uh, yeah, like, you know, that's 12 people a, a day. <laughs> it was an incredible three days, Memorial Day weekend. And then everybody was so into that and it was, it was such a good thing when, you know, we had the streets uh, set off by the police. Even the police loved it because everybody could dance in the street and it was for, uh, just a happy thing to happen in the neighborhood. They have continued Walk the Talk events every other year, but still felt the need for a more permanent physical location. Yeah, we, 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 had, we decided we wanted to get our, our own space in the form of a Skid Row History Museum and Archive, and we wanted to locate it on Broadway because we wanted to do our civic duty and help bringing back Broadway. And since, since we saw the Ace Hotel was holding down the south end of the cultural uh, Broadway, I, we thought, well, we could easily hold down the North End. You may not realize it in audio, but John's being ironic here. LAPD got their museum, a small but warm storefront gallery and event space on the rapidly gentrifying, bustling section of Broadway, which also houses their archive. But what you see in that neighborhood, pop-up shops, coffee places with outdoor seating, more and more affluent customers, shuttered businesses due to rising rents, is a downtown wave of gentrification that is constantly threatening Skid Row and began as the result of the Adaptive Reuse Ordinance of 1999. And then the first crack in the armor was when they uh, did the Adaptive Reuse Ordinance. That exploited the notion of an artist's loft in order to create uh, upscale apartments called lofts that ultimately would not only create, uh, allow, you know, market rate housing to go into existing buildings on the periphery and inside the borders of Skid Row, but it would also effectively drive out all the artists who were living in those, and nearby. <laughs> It was originally the industrial zoning status of the area between San Pedro and Alameda that prevented new housing from being built, even the building of new single residential occupancy hotels. You could only renovate the existing housing stock, but between San Pedro, west side of San Pedro, and uh, the east side of Maine, you could, you could build new hotels, which, which happened. The Adaptive Reuse Ordinance was passed in 1999 and adhered to a romantic vision of downtown LA as an affluent, thriving metropolitan center with young professionals living and working in creative studios, taking public transit, and revitalizing all the empty forgotten spaces. Unfortunately, this was at a severe cost to the communities that already lived and worked downtown. Now, we see the effects of this ordinance. Most of these converted lofts are renting at outrageous prices, topping $2,500 a month for a studio, leading to a record high vacancy rate in 2017. Even now, 
the vacancy rate downtown is twice as high as the rest of the county. You know, outside the official boundaries, on the west side of Maine, there was the Frontier Hotel, the Alexandria Hotel, the Roslyn Hotel, but they were for low-income people. A lot of families lived there, and they were proximate to services on Skid Row. So when, when the development happened, started happening on Main Street, the landlords got very, you know, f- you know, they figured out all those devious means of trying to get the population out so they could then uh, have uh, higher income people there. And like in the Frontier, they... They succeeded in converting the top three floors into into lofts by kicking out the tenants and knocking down a few walls and making bigger apartments. And they intended to do that for the entire building until um, the community organized through L.A. Can and they um, prevented it from fully happening. L.A. Can stands for the Los Angeles Community Action Network, a grassroots advocacy group. After years of fighting and organizing, L.A. Can was able to get the Residential Hotel Unit Conversion and Demolition Ordinance passed by the city of L.A. in 2008, which has been called, quote, the strongest housing preservation ordinance in L.A. history. It resulted in the immediate protection of nearly 19,000 units citywide and 30,000 people, which included about 9,000 units of housing for low-income folks in downtown Los Angeles. Becky Dennison, former co-director of L.A. Can, shares more about what happened in the fights to preserve low-income residential hotels like the Roslyn and the Frontier. Um, when the redevelopment plan started, they were explicitly calling for the elimination of thousands of units um, and really a complete takeover of particularly the historic core and then a little bit into Little Tokyo as well. So there's something like 8,500 residential hotel units in downtown Los Angeles. Um, Long been housing to the lowest income people in the city and and in downtown as well. Um, And there was a moratorium on on conversion and demolition at one time, but that had all expired. And I think from Jan Perry and other people's perspective, it's like, oh, you know, we gave them enough. SRO and Skid Row did their units and now we're taking the rest. And so, um, but it turns out that residential hotels um, had long been preserved in San Francisco. And so there was a state law that had already been challenged all the way to the California Supreme Court and upheld, saying that residential hotels can be protected despite state laws that allow people to go out of the rental business or raise rents when there are vacancies and those kinds of things. And so it gave us the opportunity um, to create an ordinance similar to San Francisco's and ours is much stronger. Um, with the benefit of 15 years later in learning what the problems was were with theirs. Um, and so those units are permanently protected from conversion or demolition. And they were all um, lined up for loft conversion. Some of them were in halfway through illegal loft conversions at the time, like the Frontier Hotel and some of the others, probably the Cecil. And that was a completely unwinnable fight from the beginning. We just we just took it off because so it was the right it? thing to do. <laughs> well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, we, first of all, we beat the pavement and knocked doors like crazy. Um, and and then I think we really did change the, the hotels were described publicly um, by city officials as flop house. They still are, but much more so then, um, or drug dens or, you know, place we just need to clear out. And, um, we would practice public testimony. We'd started every public testimony. Like, I lived at the Frontier Hotel for 10 years. My kids were born there. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a prostitute. And just, like, put it in their face over and over and over again. We went to Jan Perry's office with different delegations of people who'd been illegally ev- evicted every week almost. Um, 
And I will say, she did substantially change. She didn't change her overall viewpoint, but she did, that did change her mind. She she absolutely changed her mind when she had to look folks in the face and hear what was happening, mostly African-American people. Um, and she did become the champion of that bill. She also told us afterwards that she was never doing one more thing. <laughs> However, uh, I think she told Doga, you got that. Don't ask me for anything else. Like on the day of the vote, she's like standing up there as the champion of poor people. But she did that. And it took us to turn and, and she, it was, she was pitted against Mercedes Marquez, who was the general manager of the housing department. She didn't want to preserve those hotels at all. all. And it was a, those two are very strong and powerful women in the city at the time. And it was a battle of wills, and she did not back down. Granted, again, a lot of organizing pressure keeping her on that on that path, um, and a lot of a lot of the initial wins on the legal side as well made people realize that they weren't just going to sort of sweep in these hotels and do things under the radar. So it did slow that market pressure a bit because people organized and had legal support. So it was a, it was a combination and hodgepodge of things, but um, mostly perseverance, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All of these political wins that have preserved Skid Row and its low-income housing have come from community organizing and from grassroots advocacy. Many of the most powerful advocates come from the community itself, like General Dogon. In this recording, which was sourced from the LA Poverty Department archives and used with permission, he speaks about how he got into organizing, driven by what he was experiencing in the street. And so I left out. And I was homeless. I stayed on the block, i say a couple of months. And I ended up, my apartment ended up kicking in from the Skid Row Housing Trust. And so I remember I moved in the Sanborn Hotel. I remember the first day I moved in there. I was excited. And so uh, I, the first picture I put on the wall was a picture of the Black Panthers. Uh, I remember one day I, I went outside to smoke a cigarette. And I was standing outside in front of the building. And I remember the purple shirt pulled up on a bicycle. Put out, I, I never knew these guys because when I left downtown, uh, there was no uh, business improvement district. But when I got back, here they are. And so uh, this guy was our new security guard. He got all this equipment on it. He got everything but a gun, right? And so uh, I'm looking at this guy. I'm laughing. He reminded me of the security guard on Martin uh, Otis. <laughs> and so I'm trying to keep my laugh here. So I mean, I was smoking a cigarette, so the guy looking at me, he writing something in his little thing. And so he walks over to me and he says, um, how long are you planning on being out here? I said, I don't know why. He said, because you're having a little problem with people. I said, oh yeah, what's the problem? He said, people just hanging out. I said, well, I'm just smoking a cigarette. He said, well, um, can you do it walking? I was like, what? He said, can you do it walking? I was like, hell no. I was like, what do you mean do it walking? So it uh, pissed me off. And so I didn't know what to do. But I was a general, and I knew I had to get some soldiers because I know I'm going to be in there with these guys. And every time I come out to smoke a cigarette, which I'm planning on doing, and I ain't going nowhere, then I'm going to need some help. And so uh, I was talking to uh, uh, one of the, the hotel guys there, and um, he was like, uh, why don't you go down to L.A. Can? I was like, L.A. Can? What is L.A. Can? He said, oh, that's that group of crazy folks down the street. They're always running back and forth to City Hall, City Hall. I was like, oh, that sounds like my kind of people.
With L.A. Can, General Dogon, and a group of Skid Row residents formed a neighborhood watch to inform the community of their rights and hold security guards accountable. But that was only the beginning. The Safer Cities Initiative was introduced by Police Chief Bill Bratton in 2006 and was described by the LA Times as, quote, a new strategy for taming pervasive homelessness on Skid Row. But in reality, Skid Row residents saw this initiative as more of a broken windows policy that criminalized and harassed the homeless for sleeping in the streets, loitering, or jaywalking. Police wrote thousands of citations to people who were unable to pay and often imprisoned them. Though crime fell, it was devastating for people living on the streets. L.A. Can put out a survey in 2010 that found that more than half of the respondents, both homeless and housed, had been arrested in just the past year, in their own neighborhood. And the consequences were staggering. Of those people, 52% lost their housing, 42% lost access to social services, and 16% lost their jobs. Here's General Dogon again who experienced this firsthand. Uh, Skid Row is a community of anywhere 13 to 15,000 uh, uh, residents. Uh, three to 5,000 people uh, were living either directly on the streets or in some type of transitional housing program. And this is around 2006 when the initiative was first launched. Uh, there was averaging over 750 arrests a month and by, still by between 11 and 1,300 tickets a month. Uh, the first uh, year of SCI policing, uh, they had arrested 11,000 people and wrote 13,000 tickets within a 15-block area. Even though they say Skid Row is 50 blocks, and it is, the enforcement was only like 15-block area. We knew that it was going to be a long fight. And we was in for the long fight because we ain't going nowhere. So we went out, we had to teach the cultural resistance to folks in the community. Uh, at the same time, they was gentrifying the neighborhoods, places that we hang out at. Uh, when the mom and pop lease was up, they was up. And so um, our pool hall turned into Starbucks, and so on and so on. And so when the cops would come by, accusing everybody of lottering, you know, then you got to get out of here. I used to jump up and I used to tell folks, no, we're not lottering. You know what I mean? Uh, you sold off, gentrified all the places that we like hanging out at. You know what I mean? So we have no other place but to hang out in the streets. And then also, you know what I mean? Uh, it's not illegal to be on the sidewalk. You know, uh, as long as you're not blocking the sidewalk, you or your property, you can stand out here all day long, smoke cigarettes, or just sit up there and look at the birds all day long and tickle your toes. You know what I mean? And so the cops used to get mad. Because um, uh, when they would come by, they would tell people, hey, you're lottering, you got to leave. We would come out there and tell people, no, you don't. You know what I mean? You have a right to sidewalk like everybody else. And so people would tell the cops that, and they wouldn't leave. So we had to create that culture of resistance. While General Dogon and L.A. Can were on the street, speaking out against the policing tactics of the Safer Cities Initiative and working to influence public opinion against these harsh techniques, they were also working with the ACLU to file lawsuits to challenge these municipal code violations. Carol Sobel was one of the most prolific civil rights attorneys representing homeless people on Skid Row and challenged many of these citations. Here, John Malpede asks her to recount just a few of the many cases she tried against the city of L.A. 
Well, I started in 2000. I filed a case called Justin, Michael Justin versus City of Los Angeles. That involved um, a suite that had taken place just before Christmas, like Christmas Eve, when everybody comes down to shop in, in the flower district and toy district. Um, so they rounded up only the men. They left the women and they arrested um, quite a few of the men at that time um, and took their property and destroyed it immediately. Um, so that was the first case. Um, the second case was um, Fitzgerald. Um, that was the stop and frisk case where they went in with the dogs and the DOC, Department of Corrections people, and looked for uh, probation, parole violators, and quote, absconders, people who didn't show up after posting bail. You know, I th um, they stopped thousands and thousands of people and maybe came up with a handful. The result of that was another injunction against doing that those warrantless sweeps. Um, the third case was the Jones case, you know, and um, uh, it's been almost 10 years and that's still in effect. This case was a big one. Mr. Edward Jones was a homeless individual who slept on the streets with his wife who had a documented mental illness. He was cited for violating city ordinance section 41.18D which makes it illegal to sleep on the streets in the city of LA. A federal appellate court held that it was a violation of the Eighth Amendment prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment to forbid people to sleep on the sidewalks of Los Angeles when they had literally no place else to go. In the settlement, the city agreed not to enforce the ordinance from 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. nightly until it had provided 1,250 new units of permanent supportive housing for chronically homeless people. Half of those units had to be in Skid Row or in the downtown area around it. It's pretty upsetting that the Jones case was settled in 2009, and as of 2018, the city has not yet met those numbers. But what's even more upsetting is that 1,250 new units is barely a drop in the bucket in the face of tens of thousands of homeless people who need housing. You know, one of the problems is with moving forward, making progress on these issues, is that the city doesn't understand the issues. So when we got to the Jones settlement, for example, um, the city announced a year ago that they had met the numbers and that they were going to lift, the, you'd be able to lift the Jones settlement uh, this past September, six, you know, eight, seven months ago now. Um, and they turned over, they produced a list of all of the units that met the Jones settlement. But, you know, here's the thing. If you don't know that the Ford Apartments was the Ford Hotel, uh, because the Jones settlement did not let you include anything that existed as chronically homeless housing, low-income housing, or low-income tenants um, prior. And the uh, the Ford Hotel was, was almost exclusively Section 8 housing um, at the time we filed the Jones case. Um, it existed in 2006, so all of those units were out. If you didn't know that Jill's Place was the Downtown Women's Center before the Downtown Women's Center built the new building, that got excluded. And I could go down the list. So if you don't know what your facts are, it's really hard to address the issues. And I don't think the city knows the facts, mm. nor do I think they care. Despite Los Angeles having one of the largest homeless populations in the country, the state has been extremely slow to react to this crisis. 
There is no right to shelter law like there is in New York. And despite some additional funding from recent LA city ballot initiatives that passed, like Measure HHH, which raised property taxes in order to fund permanent supportive housing for the homeless, the state still faces enormous challenges. Recent community meetings in neighborhoods across the city have shown massive resistance to building more shelters and permanent supportive housing in communities. All this to say, there are really no alternatives to Skid Row, even still. Carol Sobel describes the situation. Well, they clearly haven't made homelessness less visible. You know, I think one of the reasons why more of the city is concerned about this issue now is because they have caused homeless uh, encampments to spread out throughout the city. Mm -hmm. And so people who didn't, you know, people who didn't have to see it, you know, if you didn't see it, it didn't exist, um, now see it on a regular basis. And you hear people, um, you know, I live on the west side, and I hear people on the west side talking about uh, homelessness um, uh, because they see it now more often than they used to. They used to think if it was something that happened in Venice, and it was something that happened in Skid Row, and maybe there was a little overflow in Hollywood. Now, if you drive out, I drive out Olympic sometimes from downtown, it, it's all across the city. It's really, I mean, the situation is, is really terrible, obviously. And yeah, you can't go anywhere, including, well, anywhere, without finding a lot of encampments. And most of them, you know, the ones now, you know, are very, you know, they're very separate from any services. There are no services at all, you know. And so in, in Skid Row, like I said, from the from the 70s, there you know, there 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 was a concentration of services. I mean, there were services there before, but they've been concentrated there, and housing was concentrated there. You know, so so now there's been uh, HHH monies appropriated, you know, and then the question is, where is it going to get spent, right? And uh, Skid Row is a neighborhood actually where people would be happy to have all that housing. Uh, built into that neighborhood because that, really that um, that billion dollars doesn't go far enough to deal with the crisis, but it could easily you know all that money could be put there, uh, if but the peop but people say we've done enough, and of course, people in Venice say we've done enough, done enough, or maybe they say we don't want to do anything. I don't know what they, they say. But <laughs> they don't want. They don't. Yeah, people say we don't want them. We don't want them. We don't want them. We don't want them. So yeah. So. So, you know, Skid Row is a neighborhood where, again, it's a neighborhood where people living in the neighborhood, low-income people, understand the issues. They're concerned about their neighborhood. They're the ones who created uh, the refresh spot, which is hygiene facilities for people living on the street. So the housed residents there are concerned about the unhoused residents. The model of Skid Row is even more important now, as the city is struggling to find ways to address a crisis that is becoming increasingly hard to ignore. But what has worked so well in Skid Row has been the community-centered nature of the supportive services for the homeless, being able to help people find housing and recovery resources in their own neighborhoods, where their kids go to school, where they work, where they have networks of friends and families. Housing just for the sake of housing, if it isolates people in far-flung places, is never going to be an effective solution, and it doesn't address many of the situations that led to homelessness in the first place. It's one of the most organized neighborhoods in L.A., and it's one of the most diverse neighborhoods uh, also of L.A. There's a lot of ethnicities and people from different backgrounds living together. 
and it's I'm sure the most uh, knowledgeable neighborhood of people that have an open mind and have have experience with working with people that are have mental illness and drug addiction there's so much wisdom and and all the and these problems are real you know there are there are very few programs in other parts of the city to to help people that have these problems and and these people have been casted out in other neighborhoods where people are living on the street now people just step over them or they call the police or they just totally ignore it because they don't want to acknowledge that these problems are there and that they could do something about it in skid row there is so much um, wisdom and giving people a second chance and and working with people to make them uh, better and get them into housing and you know this it, it's really very special we did we did a project called Biggest Recovery Community Anywhere because you hear you hear about you know Skid Row as a place that's drug infested, but the reality is that you know people in tents get out of the tents they get yeah. you know they get clean and sober. Not everybody you know everybody in their own time, but like you know and then they then they end up living in the neighborhood. So when we did the project um, in a, about five or six years ago, we did an inventory of of of. Uh, 12-step programs in the neighborhood that were, you know, organized and facilitated by neighborhood residents. There were 80 a week, you know. So there's a huge, sophisticated recovery community living there. And as um, Kevin Michael used to, used to say, who was very big in that community and big in our group, but he, you know, he passed away this year. People, you see somebody who used to be living on the street that you knew when you were, you know, and then you see that he's now clean and sober and that he's doing this and he's doing that, and then. You think, oh, you know, I could do that, and you talk to them, and and you know, it's a whole chain up and beyond recovery. People just know how to deal with a, a much broader range of of human uh, abilities and disabilities than than other people. So these are like, to use a corporate expression, these are real people skills that if everybody had them, uh, that would be a, that would be a big step towards uh, the solution of. Deal, you know, dealing with the problem as a, as a civic whole. Skid Row is many things. Vilified, a place of last resort, crime-ridden, impoverished. But it's also a neighborhood, a community, and home to thousands of people. Many of these people are community organizers, outreach workers, and seasoned recovery experts people who have dedicated their lives to help others down on their luck. It is a special place, a specific area of the city that has been carved out and protected from developers through the work of smart activists over the years, designed to be a home to those who have nowhere else to turn, as well as plenty of other mostly low-income people just living their lives in downtown Los Angeles. But the fight is not over, and it probably never will be. Skid Row will always be threatened by developers looking to make it into the new Main Street or the new Broadway. But the community is not backing down. They are actively working against the forces that would destroy what they have built with their sweat and blood, organizing their own neighborhood council and working to gain political power in the heart of downtown Los Angeles. It is not easy going. But on Skid Row, nothing comes easy. One thing that finally seems to be changing, however, is the way people talk about homelessness. 
not as a mental health issue or an addiction issue, but as a housing and poverty issue. The 2019 L.A. homeless count was completed just before the release of this podcast, and one of the first slides in the results presentation by the L.A. Homeless Services Authority underscored this reality. They said, We housed more people than ever, yet our housing affordability crisis drove a net rise in homelessness. Despite efforts to house over 21,000 unhoused people over the past year, the actual homeless count in L.A. County increased to 58,936 people. Even more disturbingly, homelessness amongst 18 to 24-year-olds increased by 24%, and more than half of unsheltered adults reported experiencing homelessness for the first time. Later in their presentation, the L.A. Homeless Services Authority acknowledged that they were fighting a losing battle. Despite helping more people than ever, they said, it is still not enough. In their report, they issued pleading calls to increase affordable housing, limit rental increases, and prevent unjust evictions. As we learned throughout this podcast, there is great work out there being done to make this crisis more visible, prompting people to start asking questions and getting involved. But it's going to take more than that. I become convinced that in order for policy to shift as radically as it needs to in order to address this crisis, we need to culturally shift how we think about cities as places to live and begin with our values as a society. If we think housing really should be a human right for all, what does that look like on a policy level? Not just what is possible, but what is actually going to move us towards solving this problem? We can't accept that the unaffordability of cities is inevitable under capitalism. We have to dream big. Lots of smart people have come up with some very interesting solutions, like vacancy taxes, tax increment financing for low-income housing, community land trusts, and new forms of public housing. But unless there is organizing on the ground to demand these changes, people will continue to fall into homelessness, and cities will continue to grow ever more unaffordable. At some point, we've got to start thinking beyond securing our own plot of land and do the work of investing in and valuing our communities. I am so thankful to John Malpede and Henriette Browers of the Los Angeles Poverty Department for their generous time in this episode, as well as conducting and getting permission for many of the interviews you heard. Many thanks to Becky Dennison, General Dogon, Nancy Minty, Carol Sobel, and Tanya Tull for the incredible work they do every day and for allowing their audio to be on this podcast. If you want to stay updated on the work being done in Skid Row and support it with donations or volunteer work, I've included links on our webpage, pavedparadisepodcast.com, to the organization's Inner City Law, Los Angeles Poverty Department, LA CAN, and information about the Skid Row Neighborhood Council, a fight that continues to this day. Thanks, as always, to Mike Yank for composing the music for Paved Paradise. This is the last episode of this six-episode series on housing in Los Angeles. Check out our website, pavedparadisepodcast.com, for more information, 
about future seasons or to catch previous episodes. And if you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. It'll help other people find us. Thanks for listening to the very end.